Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. Episode 2. Is it Hindenburg or Joffre who will wear a hero's crown? Who will be the one just like Washington when the European War is done? In my mind there's just one hero. Woodrow Wilson's name will live forevermore. Washington, June 9, 1915. Cipher report from Count von Bernstorff to the Foreign Ministry, Berlin. Following the custom of this country, Mr. Wilson's consideration of foreign affairs is now given primarily from the point of view of their influence on next year's presidential campaign. The tide of anti-German feeling aroused by the Lusitania incident is still running quite high. But it seems certain that neither the president nor the American people want a war with Germany. And Mr. Wilson will have public opinion on his side if he can find an honorable solution to his differences with us. He even make use of it as the basis of a large-scale peace movement. Though England's influence here is tremendous, the president and his cabinet, I think, are more neutral than is commonly supposed. I feel sure that the government hopes to diminish the export of arms and munitions to Europe. Public opinion would probably welcome such a move, as the export is hardly consistent with the constant appeals to humanity sent out by Washington. Colonel House to the President, June 16, 1915. Dear Governor, the military situation, as far as the Allies are concerned, is not encouraging. They have not been able to make the progress which they thought the spring and summer weather would bring about, and in consequence, Germany is much less willing for peace than she was in the autumn, and there is great anxiety in England. The sinking of the Lusitania and other breaches of international laws made it impossible for me to continue a discussion in England about a peace covenant. While in Germany, the difficulty is not with the civil authorities, but with the military and the will of the people. In my opinion, Admiral von Tirpitz will continue his submarine policy, leaving Germany's foreign ministry and Ambassador Bernstorff to offer explanations for any unfortunate incidents as best they may. Washington. The White House. Ah, so good to see you again. Welcome back, Colonel, to your shores. Thank you. I won't say that I've accomplished what I'd hoped. No. But I trust I've done no great harm, either. Uh, how was Berlin? Berlin was... They were very, uh... Cordial? And I confess, I didn't talk to your compatriots about plans for an immediate peace. Didn't feel it would serve any purpose. No. Peace hardly seems immediate. Yeah. But I'm still of the view that my country is prepared to agree terms. And would such terms include leaving Belgium and France? Yes. Hmm. That's not how it seemed to me. Even if the military showed themselves to be at all willing, I don't think the people would allow it. If you want the truth, Bernstorff, my visit to your country was rather trying and disagreeable in many ways. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Topic of munitions. Yeah, yes. Raised by your compatriots time and time again. One might almost describe it. No, I will describe it as a campaign of hate. My compatriots, Colonel, find it somewhat vexatious that America describes herself as neutral while providing the Allies with guns and bullets and shells. Yes, but not every German who's killed in battle is killed by an American bullet or an American shell. We haven't cornered the market, you know. And our munitions aren't of particular excellence. No, nevertheless, you... Nevertheless, your countrymen are very angry, your emperor included. But listen... If America were at war, say, with Japan, would the Kaiser feel obliged to close Krupp's gun factory? American neutrality isn't as neutral as it might be. That's the problem. You mean it isn't quite as neutral as Germany would like it to be? Hmm? Believe me, Bernstorff, we long for peace. Peace through negotiation. And however unneutral we might seem to be, I feel it would be a grave mistake for Germany to break with us. Hmm. May I be honest? Please. Some of us feel that in many ways German thinking is antiquated, that it's too attracted to the notion of the rule of force. <laughs> we are at a time when most advanced countries have been going in the opposite direction. Isn't England attracted to the notion at all? Isn't France? What I'm saying simply is that Germany's best interests will be served by working harmoniously with us. The Allies try. Why can't you? Berlin, August the 1st, 1915. Countess Brücke. Another month has gone by, and we seem no nearer peace than we were at the beginning. Though, according to the papers here, England now realises that Russia is useless for offensive purposes, and the Pope has written an address to all the belligerent powers appealing to their chivalry. Up till now, he's always said that he wouldn't make a move until the right moment presented itself. So, this gives one a little hope that behind the scenes, something significant is happening. A German officer told me yesterday that it was in England's interest to keep America from going to war with Germany, because if America did go to war, she'd probably have to fight Japan, and would therefore have to keep all her ammunition, supplies, etc. for herself, and could no longer assist England as much as she does. Washington, August the 30th. A cipher report from Count von Bernstorff to the Foreign Ministry Berlin. The general situation here has taken a turn for the better. The prospect of America joining the war is becoming more remote, and a rupture of diplomatic relations appears to be indefinitely postponed. The American government's intentions are undoubtedly peaceful, and the case of the sinking of the Arabic, which involved the loss of only two American lives, may be said to be comparatively unimportant. However, both the government and the people are beginning to have shrewd suspicions that we cheated the United States in the matter of the Lusitania by spinning the discussion out as long as possible and then, as if it were a reply to President Wilson's latest and most peremptory note, by choosing to torpedo the Arabic. Kurt Rietzler, Berlin. Worked in the press department of the German Foreign Ministry. Now, an advisor and assistant to Bateman Holberg, the Chancellor. 
Why, one wonders, has Germany not perished already? The Kaiser is an absurd figure. The intellectuals are psychotic, and the generals are believed to know everything, but in fact are blind. Without Beckmann Hulweg, thinks Riesler, Germany has no hope. The Chancellor is the most self-effacing and self-denying of men, completely free of prejudice and narrowness of mind. Strange that with his old-fashioned humanitarianism and lack of ostentation, he should be in power in this neo-Teutonic state of affairs. He's not at all unequivocal. His cunning is as great as his bungling. The two facets alternate. He's not engaging except with excellent wine and with music and deep conversation. He's unbearable in many ways and admirable in ways that matter. He lacks warmth and friendship, possesses no talent at all for getting along with the military, for impressing them or obtaining information from them. I've learned to revere him. Lord Northcliffe, London. And what of the situation here? Well, my thoughts are as follows. The British government has been muddling and dallying for far, far, far too long. Till now, my newspapers have dealt rather gently with these fellows out of respect for the public, who know nothing about the conduct of the war and who prefer not to hear criticism of our public men. But believe me, I won't be patient much longer. I can't be. Otherwise, I'd regard myself as a traitor to my country. Asquith must go. Kitchener must go. They must all be got rid of. If they're not, we shall lose the war. It's as simple as that. Well, the Kaiser, I'm informed, is dying of tuberculosis of the throat. Diary of Margot Asquith, 10 Downing Street. Margot Asquith, wife of the current Prime Minister. Outspoken, vicious, actually. Doesn't sleep enough has far more drive and initiative than her husband, though that's not saying a great deal. I spoke with Balfour yesterday on the telephone. Arthur? It's Margot here. Margot, how pleasant You don't, I suppose, you... read the Daily Mail? I don't read any newspapers. Oh, nonsense. Well, that's what I always claim. Oh. I admit, though, I did congratulate Northcliffe, as I recall, when the mail first appeared. Do you read it? No, Arthur, but its contents, I'm afraid, are drawn to my attention by people who write to me. Which people, Margot? I've no idea. Strangers. They write to me and they curse Henry. Yes, they curse him. Curse the Cabinet, too, for what they say is weakness in dealing with Northcliffe. Oh. Are we, the government, I mean, are we really so powerless to deal with him? One of the chief uses of a coalition government, surely, is to deal with the press. You think so? How, exactly? Well, take powers under the Defence of the Realm Act. Ah. Uh, perhaps you could suggest as much at the next Cabinet meeting. Northcliffe's backed himself to break the government, you know, through the little Welshman. You're too busy to notice such things. That's kind of you to say so. But it's clear to me Lloyd George and Northcliffe are in cahoots. He should be crucified. Which one? I was thinking in particular of Northcliffe. The attacks on Henry are intolerable. Henry never takes any interest in criticism from the press, but our allies do. 
And because of what Northcliffe gets his papers to print, they're losing confidence in us. Just ask the Foreign Office. Hmm. I was PM, you know, when Northcliffe was given his peerage. So he probably got my congratulations on that occasion, too. And he once did take me to see Wilbur Wright and his flying machine. Oh, what fun that was. Altogether, I think crucifixion is a little excessive. Memoir of Edith Bowling, September 3rd. Edith Bowling, descendant of Pocahontas, widow, close friend of President Wilson, and getting even closer. The house I discovered on my return had been festooned with flowers, and there was a note for me from the president inviting me to dinner. I waited for him in the red room. He entered, looking so distinguished in his evening clothes, and with both hands held out to welcome me. When I looked into his eyes, something broke down inside me, and I knew I could and would never forsake him. After dinner, we went for an automobile ride, and the president told me of the increasing possibility that the country would enter the war. And so, he said, I have no right, little girl, to ask you to help me by sharing this terrible load. I know your nature. You'd agree to do so out of sheer pity. Mr. Murphy of the Secret Service was in the front seat and Robinson was at the wheel, but I am proud to say that despite their presence, I put my arms around the president's neck and said, well, if you won't ask me, I'll volunteer. I'm ready as soon as you wish. Margot Asquith, November the 25th, 1915. The casualty figures that Henry gave terrible. Will 1916 go on just the same? Shall I, every morning at six, hear men marching, tramping, tramping, and masses of fellows going off from the recruiting tents and horse guards, with bands of fifes and drums and pipes preceding them? Shall I, every morning, see notices in the papers? Killed. Died of wounds. Previously reported missing. Died. Died. Died, missing, missing, line after line, column after column. How long, you Lord? Berlin, December the 15th. Countess Blücher. I hear the old refrain over and over. England is responsible for continuing the war. England, with her arrogance and inhumanity, is responsible for all the oceans of blood being shed. My soul is weary of the carnage, and I crave peace at almost any price. And yet I see, or rather I feel, why England cannot stop now. It's the same familiar situation, one that foreigners often wonder at and fail to understand. The English never know when they're beaten, and in the face of all the odds, they go on. Kurt Rietzler, Berlin. The German people seem to have an unshakable faith in dilettantism, provided it wears a uniform. The surprise is that despite the damage incurred, we're not yet shipwrecked. But since the military, in the people's eyes, are scarcely capable of making a mistake, the nature of the problem remains hidden from public awareness. 
there's one consolation. The follies of the enemy are even greater. But just think what might be achieved at such a decisive moment if the nation were truly educated and politically mature. There are a few people who possess real vision. And they have a secret war objective. The eradication of the Prussian military. Or whatever one might say that the military has become since soldiers stopped being people with education. But, but this is an objective which no one's allowed to reveal. It's what the English aim for too. February 1916. Colonel House. In London, again. A second unofficial quest for peace. On the 10th, dine with Paige at the embassy. The truth is, Colonel, do you wish to hear the truth? Always. The president has no policy. He listens to you, of course, at least I assume he does. Mm. Goes on his preparedness campaign, telling the country to get ready for conflict, but he shows no intention of being in the least ways willing to declare war. Some might consider this to be worthy of commendation. He wishes to do all he can through negotiation. But, I repeat, no policy. No plan. You have plans. You make suggestions, at least. You talk to those in power. But you're not the president. Yeah. And let me tell you also, the people of Great Britain are becoming very antagonistic towards us because of our refusal to act. Yes. Yeah. In the trenches, every shell that goes over and fails to explode, do you know what they call it? A Wilson. The fact is, Paige, peace negotiations aren't easy, and you're not an enthusiast anyway. <sighs> We've tried them. They haven't worked. The Allies may trust you, but they don't trust the President. They have no confidence in him. The British certainly don't. And if they did, you wouldn't encourage it. I wouldn't. If there were a peace conference... You wouldn't find Walter Page there. I wouldn't waste my time. Peace conferences, peace organizations, protective leagues, all built on sand, I'm afraid. So far as ensuring peace is concerned, the British fleet is item number one. Item number two? The American fleet? Such as it is. If it can grow, and if the two fleets can cooperate, learn to understand each other, there'll be no more big wars. I don't think... Colonel, since I came to Britain, I've used up my time, my brain, my money, attempting to understand the men who rule this kingdom and the women and the customs and traditions that rule the men. And I've learned enough to conclude that the British need us. And we need the British. If the president wants a policy, let him act on that. The Daily Mail, February the 11th, 1916. Colonel House, President Wilson's emissary, amusingly defeated the efforts of journalists who tried to extract information from him. Arriving at his room at the Ritz Hotel, where the press were waiting, he remarked, if there's any question you gentlemen wish to put to me that I shan't answer, fire away. 
February 21st, tea with Mrs. Asquith. A rather intimate talk. I must advise you, Mr. House, in spite of what the Times may tell us, do you know Northcliffe? I've met him. Appalling, is he not? Insufferable. He has a particular instinct, I believe, for offering misinformation. Oh, that's the very least of his faults. In spite, as I say, of the times, in spite of all the croakers who know nothing and who've never understood that we're fighting this war with allies and that we must consult and deliberate with them, my husband is a man whose brain works with amazing rapidity and decisiveness, who possesses astonishing poise, is absolutely fearless and temperate and is wonderfully free of moods and irritation, though heaven knows he has cause enough. More? More. More tea? Uh, no, thank you. In fact... Mr. House, if Henry were to die tomorrow, God forbid, I can't imagine who'd be fit to take his place. He was born for this war, and if I could destroy Northcliffe and Lloyd George, they've been our curse from the start, we wouldn't have a hitch. We'd win through, honourably and nobly, and with perfect smoothness. Of course, if America were to help us, will America help us? Or is your country only interested in making money? You have the President's ear. Speak to him. He seems far too happy doing nothing that's of any use to us. Believe me, Mrs. Asquith... Reads I... a lot, I'm told. Plays golf. Is an unpleasantly doting husband. Mrs. Asquith, allow me, please, to suggest that you know very little about the President and how he spends his day and how much effort he puts into securing peace for the world. It's not your fault, I'm sure, but your view of the president is untrue and it's unfair. Thank you for the tea. Berlin, March. Countess Blücher. Another submarine campaign has begun. What I've heard about the large German submarines makes me tremble. They're strong enough, it's said, to bear the brunt of battle, cross the ocean, and return in safety. Many Germans are even hoping for war with America, because then there'll be no need to exercise care. But every ship on the sea that isn't German can be torpedoed without discrimination or warning. A report from England claims that anything which smacks of leniency towards Germany is looked upon as un-English and treacherous, and that though the government there is fully ripe for peace overtures, it's lost control of the nation and is simply a tool in the people's hands. The most popular figure, it seems, is Lloyd George, who's donned the mask of a ferocious man of war, haranguing the masses and, as munitions chief, assiduously providing food for the iron beasts of war, all for the sake of his own private ambitions. Washington. Colonel House. Back home. Bernstorff was with me for an hour this morning at the White House. And the Allies, what is their position now? Would they be willing for President Wilson to intervene, set up some sort of conference? Only, I fear, if he takes a strong line with your government. If he took a strong line and a rift occurred between my country and yours, your country might enter the war, provided it was ready. Yes, provided it was ready. And having America on their side in the fight... This would suit the Allies rather more than negotiation. You may be right. 
A rift must not occur. I'll do all I can to prevent it. Do you have any suggestions? Well, you could tell your government that you feel completely discouraged, that the situation is regarded in Washington as hopeless, mm. and that despite Tirpitz's resignation, your government, with the best will in the world, is unable to curb the submarine campaign. An incident could occur today, tomorrow, next week, lives lost, and then crisis. Yeah, a break in relations. Yes, and then... Yes. Actually, I've already conveyed as much to my government a few times, but they've started to get the impression, I feel, that I'm crying wolf. Washington, April the 8th. Cipher telegram. There is reason only for discouragement. The situation, House informs me, is regarded here as hopeless. I request to be furnished with instructions on the basis of which I can pacify the American government, which at present has doubts of our bona fides. London, Lord Northcliffe. Our American friends wish to remind us the presidential election will take place later this year. Wilson will be nominated again, of course, but his re-election is very much in doubt. If he loses, it might mean the end of American attempts to secure peace in Europe. One might well ask, what have these attempts achieved so far? A lasting peace, I'm quite certain, will only be achieved when the enemy is crushed underfoot. Uh, the Kaiser isn't dying. I was given inaccurate information. Colonel House to the President, July 5th, 1916. Dear Governor, if the election were held today, I have no doubt you would win. But conditions and issues are so different from the usual that it is idle to speculate as to the final result. If the Allies continue their blockade rigorously, and if they push the Germans back to the former boundaries, then a feeling of something akin to sympathy with Germany may arise here. Undoubtedly, there is a lessening of the war spirit in America. He kept us out of the war. Let that be our rallying cry. All the streets and squares were filled to overflowing. Results were displayed everywhere by electric light and cinematograph. At first, Mr. Wilson's re-election to the presidency seemed less than certain, but then the situation began to change as results gradually came in from the West. Memoir of Edith Wilson, November 10th. Woodrow had been calm and undisturbed throughout, but I could see that the strain was beginning to tell on him. Great crowds at the station. A lady rushed forward, presented me with a fragrant cluster of violets and said, happiest wishes to you and to your husband, the next president of the United States. Oh, for the first time I felt confident that despite all reports to the contrary, Woodrow had been re-elected. The Times, November the 13th. Mr. Wilson gauged the temper of the country with great nicety. The people craved peace and prosperity, and under his administration, they have enjoyed peace unbroken and prosperity without example. 
And now, in his second term, he possesses greater freedom of action. The Germans supposed that Mr. Wilson would be defeated. They branded him as the most hated man in Germany and proposed to indulge in a ruthless submarine campaign during the last four months of his term on the insolent assumption that he would have neither the power nor the will to challenge German action. Now that they find Mr. Wilson re-elected, they are confident that he will remain neutral, whatever Germany chooses to do. But they reluctantly confess that President Wilson remains President Wilson. He does, and we are content that it should be so. However, he may be President Wilson with a difference. Is it Hindenburg or Joffre who will wear a hero's crown? Who will be the one just like Washington when the European war is done? In my mind there's just one hero. Woodrow Wilson's name will live forevermore. In episode two of Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade, Lord Northcliffe was played by Henry Goodman, Arthur James Balfour by Tim Woodward, Margot Asquith by Sophie Thompson, Colonel House by Nathan Osgood, Walter Hines Page by William Hope, Edith Bowling Wilson by Laurel Lefko, Count von Bernstorff by Chris Pavlo, Kurt Riesler by Gunnar Corthry, and Countess, later Princess Blucher, by Jasmine Hyde. Enter the Peace Broker is a Chrome Radio production. It was directed by Elizabeth Rigby, with sound design by David Chilton, songs performed by Jessica Walker, with James Holmes on piano. The script consultant was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, and the producer was Katrina Oliphant with thanks to the Rothermere Foundation.